0: History happened everywhere. The verdict. Out of office. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent out of office episode, tradition and folklore in Thailand during 1910 to 1920. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out or
1: else there will be spoilers ahead. I don't. I record the bloody episodes. I don't listen to them. (laughs)
0: Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the bang to my cock. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Crikey, well, I, am I, is it better to be the bang or the cock? I'm not sure. No, it's the muckock. <laughs> oh, I it's see. It's the bang to cock. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Gotcha. Yeah. And we are joined as ever by the dick dastardly of docs. It's the judge himself. It's Mr Paul Dursley.
1: I think I'd rather be the ping pong ball.
0: Yeah, okay, move on. Let's move on. (laughs) Now, Peter, I've been lounging by the pool all day without wearing any suntan lotion and the resulting heat stroke has caused me to forget everything about our out of office episode. So would you mind reminding me what we talked about in, let's
2: say, I don't know, 60 seconds? But when would you like me to start? Do it now. We travelled east to visit Thailand in the 1910s, or as it was known, Siam. We discovered a country with a capital city called well, we haven't got time for that right now, so we'll call it Bangkok for now. We discovered the history of King Rama the First, Rama II, Rama the Third, Rama the Fourth, Rama the Fifth, Rama the Sixth, and well you get the idea of that as well. We looked at traditions including tattooing, corpse floating at opium, and met King Rama VI, who was determined to modernise his country. We also discovered Kyar Anuman Rajdon, the self-taught ethnographer who helped preserve folklore, including the story of Phra Lo, the prince, who was so sexy, too princesses in the neighbouring country fell in love with him, although all of them came to a tragic end.
0: That was last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's going to tell you what he thought of thee? he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Uh, yes, I remember now, a short but sweet adventure to Thailand that was not only brimming with treasured traditions but simultaneously flourishing with folk tales. I loved it very much, but what does it matter because we're here for the opinion of just one man, Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we convene the court and receive your final ruling, please give us your first impressions of our out-of-office episode in Thailand. It was short, As is your first thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to ask you, Paul, what do you think about these episodes when me and Pete share? It's difficult to score. It makes me happier when we do this. I feel like I have some respite (laughs) from the full Dursley force.
2: Right. So, Ryan, I wanted to bring something to this episode because I wanted to talk about it in the last episode, but it didn't fit in the time period. We kind of touched on it, but uh, I wanted to dig into it a little bit deeper. Okay. And that is The King and I. Yes. We even sang a little bit of
0: it. Getting to know
1: you, getting Getting to know all
0: about
2: you.
1: Isn't that the sound of music? No, (laughs) we looked it up.
2: We definitely Googled it. (laughs) I immediately felt an enormous sense of doubt there, Ryan, so we probably should check it. (laughs) <laughs> so yes, Ryan, this is from The King and I, which is the 1956 film of the 1951 Rodgers and Hammerstein musical based on the 1944 book Anna and the King of Siam, which is based on the 1870 book The English Governess at the Siamese Court that was written by the real-life Anna. It's the prequel of *With Withnerl and I they both end in and i oh i see
0: (laughs) feels like there should be a third film out there that ends with and i and it's the and i
2: trilogy (laughs) (laughs) anyway the real anna was the writer of the first book and in the king and i i believe that the governess just kind of shows up from england and does her time in siam but the real anna was far more globe trotting than just that one trip she was a woman called anna leon owens that was a married name she was born in india in 1831 she had a mixed-race grandmother we think or certainly a grandmother that she was at pains to conceal which uh, makes people believe she was of mixed race or similar because that might have hindered her opportunities in life. Uh, she spent a lot of her early years traveling around India because her father was a soldier in the East India Company. She gets married and the couple travel to Australia in 1852. Then 5 years later in 1857 they move to Singapore. Then they move again to Penang in Malaysia. Then the husband dies of apoplexy which I think is a stroke, leaving her a poverty-stricken widow. She goes back to Singapore where she starts teaching, setting up her own school. Then in 1862, she's approached by a representative of the King of Siam, who needed a teacher to give a scientific and modern education, rather than what they were getting from missionaries, to his 39 wives and 82 children. Sorry, how many? 39 wives and concubines and 82 children. Is that why his son introduced monogamy? (laughs) Maybe he just felt it was the whole affair was far too exhausting. But anyway, she goes. I think buying gifts for all of those is the exhausting part. I mean, I'd be bankrupted on the cards alone. Well, A, he wouldn't care, and B, he'd have someone to do it for him.
0: All right. Thanks, Mr. Practical.
2: (laughs) So, anyway, she goes off to Bangkok, and she teaches there for six years, pausing only to dash off a selection of catchy musical numbers. Uh, And then the king dies when she's at home taking some leave. And the new king, who is one of the children that she taught, he was 15 years old when he came to power, Mm. and I... Don't know what Anna was hoping for, but she got a warm letter of thanks for her services, but no invitation to return. Oh, that was it. Yeah, but then she keeps moving. 1870 she releases a, a hit book called The English Governess at the Siamese Court. The book there's actually a sequel as well but together would we make up what becomes ultimately the King and I. This is quite controversial, though. She's quite a controversial figure. A lot of people say that she either exaggerated significantly her role, exaggerated how the King was a cruel and despotic kind of guy, but apparently that seems unlikely from other people's reports. So basically, was it true or was she just bigging herself up? In any event, it was very successful. She then travels to America, does the lecture circuit and the touring circuit. She takes up a teaching post in New York, and then she moves again to Halifax in Canada and finally. Canada is where her last resting place is, where she died in 1915 at the age of 83. But that woman got about. She really got about at a time where travel took forever. Yeah, I mean, that was a truly world-spanning life, wasn't it? Yeah. But quite controversial, though. So she had this Orientalist view, if you like, of the Thai culture. So a lot of people think that's an unfair representation of their culture.
1: She was also, sounds like, quite an astute businesswoman, or she had a good agent.
0: I was just thinking the same thing. I, I expect she came back and actually just handed over her diaries and they went, yeah, this is great, but <laughs> what, if, <laughs> yeah. what if the king was not nice at all and cruel and you <laughs> fell in love? <laughs> yeah, there's a good couple of chapters. The rest of it, I reckon you've got to embellish a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, gentlemen, we talked during the episode about King Rama VI and uh, specifically about his education abroad in England. And uh, that made me think of Lord Dursley, because while Rama VI originally travelled to Britain to train at the Royal Military College at Sandhurst, he decided to study law and history at Christchurch at Oxford University. But eventually he had to leave university before graduating because he had a nasty case of appendicitis.
1: Well, that's what they said.
0: Well, that did occur to me too. Um, yeah, but it was during his time studying at Oxford University that the future king was invited to join a private dining club known as... No, the Bollingdon Club. That's right. So, uh, curious to find out how someone might become a member of the Bullingdon Club, I looked up the membership requirements and found that they are, well, undisclosed, so we don't really know. Yeah, there aren't any. Well, there there may be some. The assumption is is that they're likely to do with wealth, prestige and a willingness to participate in bad behaviour because the Bullingdon Club is notorious for its members engaging in vandalism, racism and other ill behaviour. And one of the earliest examples of this was in 1894, when several of the Bullingdon Club members used clubs and other objects to smash the windows at Christchurch College in Oxford. In total, they destroyed 468 windows, which was estimated to be in the thousands of pounds then, which I guess would be in the tens of thousands of pounds today. And since then, it's become relatively common for Bullingdon Club members to be arrested for vandalism, often accused of smashing windows, damaging furniture and throwing food and drink around in pubs and restaurants. In fact, in 2004, one of Britain's more recent prime ministers, Alexander Boris de Fethel Johnson, was a member of the Bullingdon Club when he joined several other members on a night out in a pub in Fifefield near Oxford, when they decided to smash the place up. Johnson was one of four members who were arrested that night, And uh, he later apologised for his behaviour, saying that he was deeply sorry for the damage, adding that he had learned a valuable lesson.
2: Had he... Or (laughs) (laughs)
0: not. Defeffel. Now, sadly, there are no recorded reports of young King Rama VI rampaging around Oxford, wielding a club and smashing windows, although some might argue that his later destruction of ancient Siamese traditions might pay a more passing similarity to the work of the Bullingdon boys. But I was wondering, Paul, were you a member of the Bullingdon Club? Would you be allowed to tell us if you were? Have you got anything Uh, to apologise for?
1: No, I was not. And I don't think I have any of the unwritten qualifications
2: I was a member of the Jiu-Jitsu Club. That's as far as I went, I'm afraid, in terms of my club ability. What was your initiation for that? Did you have to get beaten up or something? Well, we got beaten up on the regular, really. It was a (laughs) weekly event, the beating (laughs) up, so (laughs) it wasn't much more needed in the way of initiation.
0: On an unrelated note, though, guys, I have just set up the HHE Podcast Club. So if anyone's looking to become a member, you can join us at uh, the Croydon Pub for a good smash-up.
2: How would you tell? <laughs> That's a very good point. Damn it.
0: Okay, club's closed.
2: Oh dear. Good.
0: So in the section on folk tales,
2: Pete, you made mention of a wear tiger. I did, I did. It was it was potentially also known as a Rishi, which was a, a kind of enlightened Buddhist spirit, and also described as a genie in one of the sources that I saw.
0: Okay. Well, look, we laughed at it, didn't we? The idea of a were-tiger, uh, because we in the West are familiar with werewolves, right? We are. Uh, but it appears that were-tigers, uh, bloodthirsty and dangerous mythological creatures that are both half-human and half-tiger, are a pretty popular folktale character, especially in many Asian cultures, including India where they're associated with Durga, a goddess who has the head of a tiger. In China, they're known as Holy Jing, and are said to be able to shapeshift into other animals as well, such as foxes and wolves. Uh, In Japan, they're known as Bakaneko, and they are said to be able to transform into other animals, such as cats, dogs, and frogs. (laughs) Uh, They're a popular subject in literature and film, uh, with one of the more notable mentions coming from Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. And we're not talking about Shere Khan, but it was another tiger, one which is described at the beginning of the book as being large and powerful and could walk upright like a man. But it's not all stories, guys, because people from the Malaysian state of Pahang still recall an event from the early 1900s when a tiger was said to have plagued several villages, killing several people, before eventually being hunted down and killed only for the hunters to stand over the tiger's dead body and watch as it transformed into a man. Ooh. But if you think that where tigers are relegated just to Asia, think again, because clearly you haven't heard of the Beast of Gavordan, a town in France which in the 1760s was the location for the mysterious deaths of over 100 people, each of them the victim of a large, ferocious creature that was said to look like a giant man-cat. No! Yeah, and the worst part is, is that the beast was never captured and its identity
2: remains a mystery. Why does mancat sound so much more frightening than Catman? <laughs> Catman, <laughs> <laughs> you see, yeah, oh, you right. be afraid if someone said, "There's a
0: Catman coming." I'd be like, "Oh, the Catman's coming!" <laughs> well, it sounds Catman sounds like a guy who's selling cats. <laughs> anyway uh some bonus were tiger facts for you guys oh, uh tigers are said to be able to control the weather causing storms and earthquakes that's an unrelated thing yeah but apparently they can they can also communicate with other animals they're said to be very strong and agile they're able to climb trees and swim like you know a tiger tigers <laughs> and they can see in the dark Like a tiger. Like a tiger. (laughs) (laughs) And so. Peter, you and I have come to the end of the line. It's time for us to step into the
2: dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Yes, yeah, it's a little unusual. We have to kind of jostle for position in the dock, I guess. Suppose stand or fall together, my friend. You go at the front. <laughs> Uh, Judge Dursley, are you ready to give us your verdict?
1: As ready as I ever was. Then will the defendants please rise? First of all, your episode was only half as long, so should I divide the scores in half? And then, as both of you, should I divide them in half again?
2: I think you should double them and double them again because it was a distilled episode of incredible intensity.
1: Okay. Your Honour,
0: as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual
1: content. Well, I think for a short episode, you packed in a few facts there. That's positive, Pete. It is. Yes, well, it was a short episode, I suppose, so
0: you fitted them in snugly. OK, excellent. Um, Can we have your grade for factual content?
1: I'll give you a... B minus... Hey, that's my good. Head. Nice work, right? I'm happy with that.
0: Nice one, Pete. So, Your Honour, then, may we have your verdict on entertainment value?
1: Well, do you know, a real positive was there were no sketches in it. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. then I won't give you a decent score for it. I'll give you... Decent...
0: C. Oh, we blew it, right? <laughs> we did, yeah. I should have kept my mouth <laughs> shut. Okay, then, Your Honour, may we have your verdict on... Dursley Factor. How did this tickle your bones?
1: I, to be honest, it's a bit of a neutral one. Um, I usually go on these, am I interested in the country? Is it an interesting country? Is it an interest? Is it an interesting subject? I'm afraid, sort of folk tales is a bit. Bleh. Yeah,
0: it's fiction, isn't it for you?
1: So I will give C plus.
2: Better than I was expecting, right? Much better, yeah. Yeah, I was oh, am, I gen-
1: am I being too generous on this? Not at all.
2: No,
0: no. And so we reach the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Pete and myself, we have an opportunity to enter a plea. If we choose to do so, please make that plea now. After you, Ryan. Well, I, I don't really want to give one. Do you want to give one? Not really, no. no so should we just should we bounce out? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Your Honour, we choose not to make a plea at this time. Noted. Well then, Your Honour, the defendants stand before you. Have you reached a verdict?
1: Yes, I have.
0: In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling.
1: You may be a bit shocked at this, but I'm afraid I'm only giving you a C.
0: A C? I'm okay with a C. You right with a C, Pete?
2: Yeah, it's all right. I'll take that for an out of office. Yeah. Because it's like we're by the sea on our holiday. We're on holiday. I can take it. Yeah. And where are you, by the way? We cannot disclose our location as part of the terms of our witness protection.
0: Okay. well, look, there you go. That is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on the show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at HHEPodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at HHEPodcast.com.
2: Absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show, such as the mighty Britain who wrote to us to tell us about some interesting synchronicity they experienced in the show where they were listening to our podcast about poo and another podcast about poo in the same week. What a week to live. Uh, But they also said, thanks for always being so fun and awesome. Thanks to you, Britain. But one way to definitely feature on a future
0: episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation there
2: can really go a long way to helping us bring the show to new list. Now, if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert whenever we post any trivia tidbits, news, photos, extra facts, all those kinds of things. And we'll be back
0: again soon with our next episode, episode 75 Communism in Antarctica during the Triassic. Classic stuff. (laughs) But in the meantime, a huge thank you to you, the judge himself. Thank you, Paul.
1: My pleasure.
0: And that's it. I guess all that's left to say now is... You've been listening to.
2: Why isn't a mermaid a fish? (laughs) Because a thing turns fully into that thing periodically, whereas a mermaid is eternally half of those things. So it's the ability to transform in and out. Yeah, because a centaur is not a horse, is he? He's a centaur. So what about Ariel from The Little Mermaid? Oh, because she gets her legs. She gets legs, yeah. Does Ooh, that make she's a her half a werefish? Half fish? <laughs> Technically, she's 50% fish at that point, I think. <laughs> yeah. So if you were to become a were animal, what were animal would you become then, right? Um, orangutan. <laughs> a, were- a were orangutan. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'd be a worm. I'd be a were person. <laughs> Every month in the full moon, he becomes. A man. (laughs) A normal man.
1: (laughs) We're just normal men. What do you mean normal men? We're just innocent men. (laughs)